HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Oh, hi. <laughs> oh, hi. <laughs> yeah, it's me. Hello. And this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, I was uh, busy looking up uh, the website for the Food and Environmental Reporting Network, which is one of my favorite media outlets. Um, they do some very critical work around food and environment. And today um, I am happy to welcome to the program one of their authors, Lauren Markham. Lauren is a writer and reporter based in Northern California. She focuses on issues related to youth, migration, and the environment. She has received fellowships from the Middlebury Fellowship Fellowship in Environmental Journalism and the UC Berkeley 11th Hour Food and Farming Journalism Fellowship. Her work has appeared in outlets such as Vice, The New Yorker.com, VQR, Guernica, Orion, The New Republic, Pacific Standard, and On This American Life. Her recent article for the Food and Environmental Reporting Network and the subject of our discussion today, and also uh, this was also published in the in the Pacific Standard, is focusing on <clears throat> excuse me the intersection of the recent migration influx and the California drought. And um, those of you who tuned in for last week's show with Tom Philpot will remember that we talked a lot about uh, the drought and the impact on the uh, Central and Imperial Valleys, which are two of our, um, you know, basic... Uh, um, bread baskets for this country. That's where we get most of our uh, of our fruits and vegetables, and especially in the South. Um, but they are both running out of water fast. And um, Lauren's contribution here is an article called Scorched for Central American Migrants. The promise of work in the fields of California has dried up. Welcome to the program, Lauren. Sorry about the lengthy introduction, but I really appreciate you joining me today. 
Thanks so much for having me. Oh, yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, I just wanted to set the stage because water and um, labor are two themes that have come up in, I think, probably the last two or three programs that I've done. Um, And I'll continue to cover these stories just because I see that the drought is going to have a huge impact on the immigrant population um, in the West and probably soon other parts of the country. So in your recent piece, Scorched for Fern, you described how many farmers or, you know, fruit and vegetable growers are fallowing their fields in California because of the drought. So how many acres are we talking about? What kind of crops are we talking about? And how many workers are affected by this? Yeah, great questions. I mean, it's really affecting all crops, right? Because as water becomes more scarce and um, therefore more expensive, it's really affecting all crops. But of course, the most water-intensive crops are being impacted the most. We're all hearing a lot about almonds um, Mm -hmm. recently because for a pound of almonds, it takes over 2,000 gallons of water to produce just a pound of almonds. Um, Avocados are up there. Eggs and livestock are are really um, Mm -hmm. water-intensive too. So it's, of course, impacting those the most. really impacting all crops. Um, the data, the, the, the best data we have is from a UC Davis drought impact study that was conducted. It was published last July, so it's actually sort of old data considering that the, that the drought has gotten worse and worse. Sure, but no snow last, melt, right? Yeah, but as of last July, we were really, it was 5% of irrigated croplands um, had already gone out of, out of um, kind of out of commission, mm-hmm. um, so 428,000 acres. Wow. That's a lot. And, you know, that was almost a year ago at this point, so, and it's only kind of gotten worse. Um, right. And in terms of, in terms of workers, um, again, sort of the same, the same studies showed that 17,000 seasonal and part-time jobs had gone, um, kind of gone out of business um, as of last July as well. Wow, 17,000, that's a big, that's a pretty big chunk of labor there. Absolutely. Um, and a lot of these, uh, a lot of these migrants are coming from other countries, um, you know, seeking not just the promised land, but also escape from the terrible conditions in their own countries. So it does make you wonder how many more of them will continue to make that trek when there really isn't very much work here um, as there has been in the past. But I wanted I wanted to go back to something you just said quickly before we move on to mm-hmm. um, to, you know, sort of the heat stress and the, and the sort of conditions in the fields because of climate change. And that is you just mentioned avocados is one of the most um, water intensive crops that California grows. And as somebody who is a baby boomer, when I was growing up, an avocado was an unbelievably rich and precious thing that you got maybe a couple of times a year. My mother was mad for them because they lived in, uh, my parents lived in Mexico and got sort of hooked on avocados, but they were not as ubiquitous as they are now. And I was just noticing, like over the weekend, watching the TV, that every fast food chain now advertises avocado or guacamole as part of what makes their product so special. And I'm talking not just Taco Bell, not just Subway, you know, not just Mexican, but also like Subway, Panera. I mean, Mm. virtually every uh, fast food chain, McDonald's, they're all using avocados. And uh, it's just, you know, I don't understand how they can continue to do that when there is such a water shortage. And again, we were talking trees, so there's no sort of question of whether or not you're going to water your trees if you want to keep. So can you, can you just address the sort of rise of avocado and culture or is right. that too off topic? I mean, what's yeah, going to happen no, with that? It's really, it's really interesting. I mean, I think it's just part of this idea that we think that we should get any kind of food we want 
wherever and whenever we want it, right? So we should yeah. be able to have avocados all year round. We should be able to have avocados in, you know, in, in Vermont and Massachusetts in the middle of winter. Um, mm-hmm. And there's just this, this sort of sense of uh, this sort of false sense of plenty, right, that we can we can just and privilege, really, that we can yeah. eat. We're not eating seasonally, and we're not eating locally. We're eating whatever we think um, we should. We should. We're, we're entitled to eat. Well, I just think it's fascinating that the avocado has gone from being kind of a rare and special thing to being something that is literally served up with almost every meal. I mean, breakfast, I lunch, and dinner. And that is something that, you know, obviously it takes a while for avocado trees to become um, viable, you know, in terms of, of producing enough crop. But it's just fascinating to me that as water dries up, more and more of these trees, just as more and more nut trees are planting, are being planted and, <clears throat> and harvested with no sort of sense of foresight about where are they going to get the water, um, who are they going to buy it from, and what other crops will be ha- affected by uh, by continuing to harvest those crops in favor of other fruits and vegetables. Just, just right. A it's, just, and it's just such a profitable, you know, nuts and avocados. There's such profitable industries, and in the, the, the sort of water scarcity and the loss of profit margins there, I think, just hasn't quite caught up with mm-hmm. um, with you know the pretty abundant profit margins of of um, you know selling these around the country and really around the world. I mean, California um, had a $10.7 billion profit in, in exports just in, in 2010. So wow. um, That's we export pretty, a lot of stuff, too. 2010, <laughs> yeah, you can imagine it's much more now. Um, it just fascinates me that, uh, you know, and, and, and the other thing that I, when I was talking with Tom Philpot last week was, um, we touched on the fact that hedge funds that, you know, sort of Wall Street is gambling on these commodities as much as anyone else. And they're investing in almond groves. And I'm sure they're investing in avocados as well. But we digress, my darling. We digress because <laughs> I want to stay on topic with your with your article, which was excellent. Um, and, and then when I was doing some research around it, uh, I came across quite a few um, articles about sort of how uh, the climate, how climate change is affecting the health of workers. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the fact that migrant workers who are already disproportionately affected by agricultural chemicals and other health hazards, um, they also bear the brunt of heat stress and dehydration. Um, Is there, you know, is there a change in the industry to recognize that? What's happening to workers who, you know, I would imagine some of them are passing out in the fields or dying or having heat prostration, having to go to the hospital. Like, is there, do you hear a sort of of drumbeat about that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's like the Central Valley in the summer is and always has been really hot. Um, And so it's been an issue for a really long time. But as you say, um, it's it's becoming and going to become, you know, an increasing issue. There are all sorts of labor laws about how there has to be water and there has to be, you know, this many breaks, um, you know, required for all workers between mm-hmm. these hours. And there has to be a certain a certain amount of shade that a certain percentage of the workers in the fields at any one time have to get under, you know, have to be able to get out of the sun and into the shade. Yeah. Um, and I think for the most part, these um, labor laws are sort of on paper, they're followed. Um, but at the same time, you know, especially in scenarios in which workers are making money um, based on how much they pick, right? That there's a, yeah. there's an incentive not to take a break. Um, there's right. an incentive not, you know, to, to force yourself not to, to need water because that if you take 15 minutes off, that's 15 minutes worth of, of, of crops and therefore money. Um, 
for you and for your family that you're not going to take home that day. So I think it's a huge problem. And I think that, um, though, I think that there are a lot of labor contractors who really are trying to, to kind of follow the rules. Um, just the whole system is set up to incentivize overwork. Um, yeah. And, you know, in, 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 in an environment with, with work scarcity, with job scarcity, you're going to work overtime, extra time. You're going to push yourself because you want that foreman to hire you back the next day. Yes. Um, so you're less likely to take the breaks that you're entitled to. Right, and more likely to wind up in the hospital for not doing it. Exactly. Um, do you think that they will eventually switch the schedule and have crops picked at night? That, to me, seemed like the most sensible way of solving <clears throat> this problem. But I don't think all crops are at their best at night. That's, that's the thing, and to be honest, I don't know enough about the about the sort of, like, science and chemistry of all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, yes, I mean, I think that in a lot of ways that makes a ton of sense. Um, but I'm, I'm just not exactly sure how how and if they could pull that off. I mean, I know I've been out into the fields in the very early morning at 5, 6 a.m., mm-hmm. you know, in, like, November when it's totally pitch black and they're absolutely picking stuff. So yeah. um, it's possible. It's possible, but it doesn't seem like a movement that's happening at the moment. Interesting. Interesting. So let's talk a little bit about your article. Um, Just talk about, describe the woman that you profiled, Clara, and how climate change is affecting her family's prospects. Her husband was already a seasonal worker, right? So she came up from Honduras. Tell us about it. Yeah, so I wrote about a woman um, who I call Clara Orozco. That's not her her real name. Um, for for very because of immigra- her immigration scenario, she was very nervous um, to kind of have her her full name shared. So we gave her a pseudonym. She is from Honduras. Um, she came over in um, last summer during the wave of um, of, of immigrants who crossed from Central America last summer, mm-hmm. um, along with her daughter. She came with her 12-year-old daughter. And um, she, you know, the wave of immigrants coming last summer were primarily fleeing violence and, um, and p- political violence, gang violence, um, and sort of political persecution at home in Central America. Um, and there were huge numbers of unaccompanied children, as well as young families like Clara and her daughter. Right. So they came over um, because they were getting threats um, based on their political involvement in Honduras, um, and threats that were really, really pretty terrifying um, and very clearly have traumatized um, this woman. She was very, she was very reticent to talk about them. So she came over, um, she was caught by immigration, and she um, was temporarily released with an ankle bracelet um, to where her husband, um, who she hadn't seen in a very long time, uh, to where her husband lived in Mendota, California, which is the cantaloupe capital of the world. He'd been a seasonal worker, a farm worker for over 20, for about 20 years. Um, and he had great connections with foremen. He had really steady work pretty much all year round. Um, but, you know, she, she, along with this huge wave of migrants coming across this summer, they crossed um, at, at this kind of acute tipping point, really, um, of, of what has been a, a sort of lo- long-coming California drought. Mm-hmm. Um, so they arrived with this influx of many people coming to California at the same time when there was this, when there's this drought that's drying up a lot of the work. So not only did um, Clara have a really hard time finding work um, because she was new, she also had very, a lot of complications with her, with her ankle bracelet. She wasn't really, she wasn't allowed to be working and she was being tracked for every move was being tracked right. by immigration. Her husband, who had these great connections and who had been working for decades, 
also was having trouble finding work. So it was really impacting both the new migrants and the old migrants, which I thought was really was really fascinating. It sort of mm. followed to me that it would be harder for the newer folks who didn't have those connections and who sort of didn't yet know the, the kind of the work landscape to find work. But for these folks who'd been there for a long time, this was their livelihood, this was their daily way of life. Um, it was pretty pretty um made a big impression to see how little how, how for many of them the work was drying up yeah well i mean you're saying that in, uh, you know even in that study that you um reported at the beginning of the segment that 17,000 workers were being you know essentially not employed because of all mm-hmm. of the following of land um and then you have this huge influx i think it was something like 56,000 immigrants that came in last summer and maybe that was just the children i don't know yeah, there, there, are about 60, there are about 60,000 family unit uh-huh. um, cases, and so that included the, the parents and the children. And then about um, about another 60,000 unaccompanied minors, right. so, you know, children. Many of them, though, were in their teen- were, were teens. Um, and I actually wrote a couple years ago an article, about a year ago, an article for Vice magazine about unaccompanied minors working uh-huh. in, the, in the California fields as well. So they're also looking for jobs, right? They're right. teenagers looking to support themselves. And those numbers, the you know, those are 60,000 family detention um, cases plus the 60,000 unaccompanied minors, those are only the folks who are caught, right? So then plenty yeah. more came across the border looking for work um, and work caught and aren't reflected in those numbers. Wow. That's just, it's heartbreaking. So now the woman that you talked about, Clara, she Mm -hmm. came over uh, illegally and was caught by immigration and she paid something like, I think you said $7,000 to her coyote. And what happens if she can't pay him off? I mean, if she can't get work either because she can't leave her home because of the ankle bracelet or because there's simply not enough work for, you know, this huge influx, what happens to her? Does the coyote come and break her legs or, you know, how does that play out? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, these these coyote rings are increasingly tied up with, you know, the human smuggling and the drug smuggling business Mm -hmm. are increasingly tied together. So, um, you know, it's. Sometimes um, the coyote, not necessarily the coyote um, himself or herself, but the kind of coyote ring is often um, kind of enmeshed with some pretty dangerous folks. And she could absolutely be at risk. Her daughter could be at risk. Her son, who's in his early 20s, is still um, living back in Honduras. He could be at risk. Her family back in Honduras could be at risk. Um, Yeah, they find ways to make you pay. I don't know how you squeeze blood out of a turnip, but this certainly sounds like a turnip to me. It's just so... So heartbreaking. So let me ask you this. Why wouldn't somebody like Clara, who is fleeing political violence in Honduras, be eligible for political asylum here? Great question. Um, and she, <laughs> she may be. <laughs> she may be. And, and, and she, she likely, you know, from, from what I um, understand of her story, from, from talking with her and um, from, you know, I have a fair amount of experience um, with refugee and asylum law, mm-hmm. she really in all likelihood should qualify for asylum, but there are a couple of issues there. One is that she ha- she has to find a lawyer. Um, she It is exceedingly difficult to apply for asylum and navigate um, th- that sort of legal process of, of getting asylum right. um, in the United States without a lawyer. And lawyers are increasingly hard to come by because mm-hmm. there's this huge influx, right, which is putting pressure um, on the on the kind of immigration legal support apparatus. Um, Especially, I think, in the Central Valley. Um, I live and work in, in the Bay Area, and where you know, a lot of legal agencies have, have stepped up to take on a lot of these cases. I think that that's less true in the Central Valley. Um, they don't have a lot of law schools, for example, with free legal help. So, 
So, so finding a lawyer is really tricky. Um, you know, she has to find a law- the lawyer who she found um, is another several thousand dollars, um, and uh, for her and for her daughter. Um, and you know, they're in Fresno, so she has to travel to Fresno, but she has this ankle bracelet, and so how she's going to do that? How is she going to do that? So, even though she she really should probably qualify for political asylum, it's not quite as simple as just sort of does your story match up. Um, I should also note that that with this with this massive influx. Um, we're seeing we're seeing that that there's that there's some sort of in the public sec- public sphere there's more and more xenophobia and sort of less and less patience for mm-hmm. as more people come with similar stories there's kind of like an overwhelm of oh really are we really going to offer political asylum to all of these people like why why are Hunter and Hunter's political problems our problems why is El Salvador's gang problem you know our problem right and so um, so people actually are people's cases are actually getting turned down um, even though kind of by the letter of the law they really should or might might have a really good chance of qualifying. Well, that, that was so prevalent when um, you know when you heard uh, Republicans uh, speaking about the, the even just the children. I mean, people didn't even talk about the sixty thousand family units last summer. Right. They talked about the fifty six thousand children, unaccompanied minors, and uh, and there was very little recognition on the part of the really both political parties, um, but especially the Republican rhetoric was very um, you know very hostile to the idea of of caring for these kids who obviously have no place to go. And, you know, to be fair, it's a lot for a community to absorb, uh, you know, several thousand new children who don't speak English, et cetera, et cetera, who may have medical needs and all the rest of it. I mean, it's absolutely, absolutely. It is a lot, but you know, we were, it, 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 it's, Certainly, you know, um, it's, it's absolutely there's a there's a financial burden there. Um, but you know, we have to look at too. What are the reasons that, that Central America is sort of dissolving um, mm-hmm. politically, um, and and the United States trade policies have something to do with that. The legacy of war and violence that the, that the United States supported um, in the 80s and 90s in Central yeah. America has to do with that. And it was interesting because this summer, on the one hand, we were saying, "Oh my God, there's like 120,000 people that are crossing our border, and this is an emergency, and this is out of control." Mm-hmm. You know, on the other hand, we were telling we were telling. Um, so we were doing that domestically, and then abroad we were telling Turkey, you know, you have to take millions of Syrians. You have to do your duty. There are millions of Syrians crossing your border, and, right. you know, international law says that you have to take them in uh, for humanitarian reasons. So, you know, <laughs> what what we do domestically um, and what we, what you know, yeah, the, uh, the standards what, that we hold we ourselves and other do. people to are right. sometimes at odds. I'll <laughs> say. Well, I mean, I'm old enough to remember quite uh, clearly, uh, in fact, at the time I was working for WBAI, and um, they uh, covered the Iran Contra hearings and um, had some really fantastic programming. That was when Amy Goodman got her start, and they just—I mean, what we were doing in El Salvador and Nicaragua was just—you know—sort of people do not remember. It never really got the press that it should have. But, I mean, it's so interesting to me to have you say that really this is just the legacy of those failed policies from all those decades ago. We're just we're reaping those rewards now. And that just breaks my heart so much. Absolutely. Yeah, it's coming. It's coming. It's rearing its head again and it's impacting us, you know, Um, and. And and as as it should, right? We're we're involved and we're complicit. That's my opinion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I agree. I mean, and so then there has to be some kind of sense of responsibility. Not that we have to. I mean, 
not that we can even afford to absorb all these people, but that our the way that we interact with these other countries has to be brought out of the colonial era and into the 21st century, because essentially that's what we're talking about. You know, Absolutely. when we set up puppet governments and topple other governments for our own interests, and then we're like shocked that, you know, things don't work out down in Honduras. Oh my God, what are we going to do with all these people? Well, you know, how about not doing what we're doing? Um, what happens to a migrant worker when they cannot work, either because of their immigration issues or because there is no work? What Do they go on public assistance? Do they starve to death? Do they go home? How does right. that work out? Yeah, I mean, they really can't go on public assistance because they're not eligible, right? Mm-hmm. So they're not eligible for food stamps. They're not eligible for cash assistance. Um so what, you know, people, people survive, people figure out ways to survive. And it's pretty astonishing, um, you know, just to, to see what people will do um, just to make ends meet. I, you see a lot of doubling up. So, you know, three families living in a one or two bedroom apartment. Um, Clara um, and her husband had doubled up with several other folks um, in, in their homes so that the rent, you know, would go down. Mm-hmm. Um, but it definitely creates, it definitely creates a lot of pressure, a lot of stress, a lot of fear. Um like, how are we going to get food on the table? How are we going to make ends meet? And, of course, then there's the irony of, like, being in the nation's, um, you know, Bread fruit basket, basket yeah. and not having enough food, having food insecurity, which is prevalent and has been throughout the Central Valley for, you know, for decades. Amongst this population particularly. Yes, absolutely. And that's because wages are so low. If they're wages are low, exactly. Wages are low. Um, yeah, is there a lot of exploitation sort of- the way there is in other, you know, like, I mean, I'm sure there's... Right. I mean, this is sort of we're playing out the Immokalee tomato workers in California or no, yep. it's not the same. Sorry. Sorry. Ask the question again. I um, is it the same kind of workers exploitation that we saw when, you know, in that movie Food Chains, for example, with the Immokalee oh, tomato absolutely. workers? It's yeah, exactly absolutely. the same, there's right? Work, there's worker. Yeah, there's worker exploitation. Um, and there's just sort of no benefit or safety net, right? So if you break your leg and you don't have health insurance, now what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, if you hurt your back, um, but you're only, the only sort of um, connections and, and you, know, you have a ton of skills, but the only sort of marketable skills that you have in the United States are picking crops. Well, if you if you busted your back, how are you going to be going to need? Right. It's just, it's an amazing story that we live in in the 21st century. And I'm, I'm feeling like, you know, when I read more stories like yours um, and I see, you know, food chains come out and, and sort of various other um, media driven uh, stories about immigration, labor, you know, all of the labor disputes and immigration disputes that are prevalent in the meatpacking industry, for example, which is very similar with its Mm -hmm. problems. Um, I do feel like these issues are going to start forcing consumers to pay more attention and to perhaps be a little more responsive to these issues. Um, I was going to say we would take a short break, but I see my engineer has stepped out. (laughs) So we'll just keep on going here. It's okay. It's all right, Declan. We'll just keep on going. Um, So what do you hear from migrant workers? Did they talk about climate change and the influence, you know, that the impact of climate change on their livelihood? Are they worried? What do they, do they think about moving elsewhere? How are they coping with um, this and how much information do they actually have about what is the drought levels? It's a great question. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of conversation about the drought, about the drought, about the drought. Mm-hmm. And so there's not um, as but like it's so as, as uh, and of course, this is true, right? It's a real focus on what's happening in California related to the farmer for livelihood um, and the seca or the drought um, that uh, that 
you know, happening and is totally unignorable in California. That's what I hear a lot of farm workers talking about. I actually, we had a huge storm here in California in December and like schools shut down and like everyone was so excited because there was this huge, you know, it was December, it was early in the season. We got all of this water, all of this snow. It was so great. Everyone was so excited, you know, okay, we're going to get out, you know, and of course, like we barely saw any rain after that. (laughs) So. But I remember I went up to Yosemite, um, and there was snow in December, and Yosemite was a great thing. And I happened to meet some farm workers who were taking kind of a vacation and had t- taken their kids up to the snow for that, for that you know, the first right. time their kids had ever seen the snow. Wow. And I sort of said, are you excited? How are you feeling about the water? You know, is it, you know, does this feel? And they looked at me like, are you kidding? This is nothing. Like, this isn't going to change anything. They looked at me like I was crazy. You know, they <laughs> they knew that all of us were being optimistic, and they're like, that didn't make a dent. We need that, like, every day for two months, and then, yeah. you know, then we can talk about the drought. And that was just really, really interesting um, to sort of see. They had their fingers on the pulse much more than I did, of course. Um, of, yeah. of sort sure. of, like, what the real loss and need was in terms of water. And so this is, like, the fourth year of significant drought. Am I right, or has it I, gone on for longer? I've heard others, I've heard seven years, I've heard 12 years. I mean, I don't really know what to believe now in terms of the the, the California and Southwestern droughts, you know, scenario. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm sort of, I'm sort of, it sort of depends on like how you're measuring, what mm-hmm. you're measuring by, you know, if there, it can, you can have like a low year and, and decide that it's an anomaly, but then it starts to happen and then you can, then it starts to happen more and more and, and it goes on for longer. And then you can sort of like look back and see the drought pattern. So yeah, most people are saying about four years and then, but yeah, I, it, it sort of depends on how yeah. you're measuring and when you're when you're starting to measure. Have them. they ever measured it the way? I mean, because normally all of this, uh, all of the water that would have served as as irrigation for the Central Valley, the Imperial Valleys, that would have been um, snowpack melt, right? And now, yeah. isn't it new that they're tapping into groundwater in a way that has never happened before? Yeah, the groundwater is totally terrifying. The groundwater situation is totally terrifying because it's borrowed time, right? It's like this yeah. ancient water that's been been accumulating for <clears throat> for millennia. Um, we're using thousands of year old water, tapping it from the ground, and we've actually been doing that. I say we, meaning like the agricultural industry in California, right. my state, has been doing that for for many years. Um, but the, as the drought gets worse and worse, we're doing it more and more. We're pumping deeper and deeper, and that is not good because it's actually, in a way, um, sort of staving off the real impacts of the drought. You yes. know what I mean? Like, of course, we're seeing all these impacts of the drought, but because we have this bank account of water, we're just using up all of our savings. When mm-hmm. the savings are gone, it's going to be like a double whammy once again. Well, then it's going to be really sad for those almond and avocado uh, farmers because... <laughs> <laughs> yep, they'll be trucking the that water getting in. Getting any water either? Exactly. Yeah, they'll be trucking that water in. Um, Jack, yeah. do you want to take a quick break for a sponsor drop, or can, should we just keep going? Sponsor drop. So, Lauren, stay on the phone with us. We have a few more questions to go. Um, hey, and hey. Uh, this has been a great discussion so far. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll Thank be right you. back after this. Okay. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. 
We are back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and my guest today is Lauren Markham. She's a journalist that uh, writes a lot about uh, immigration and the environment. She um, published a story recently called Scorched. Uh, it was published in the Pacific Standard as well as on the Food and Environmental Reporting Network, one of my very favorite media outlets. Um, and so we were talking about how um, migrant workers, how fruit pickers are, are responding to climate change. Are there um, migration patterns changing? Are they going to different areas in the country, do you think? And do you think that's more likely as as the drought uh, hopefully does not, you know, con- continue, but as it probably will? Mm. Yeah, it's definitely likely to. Um, so, yes, there are migration shifts, but it's interesting because, you know, the woman, Clara, who I wrote about um, with, with the Food Environmental Reporting Network and Pacific Standards, um, she didn't come for work, right? So we're seeing this real shift over the past mm. five six, seven, eight years, of there were fewer, basically since the economy um, tanked um, yeah. in the U.S., we saw a real shift away from people coming to the United States for work, right, that this kind of mm-hmm. pull factor, people are coming to the United States for a better life, um, and much more toward people leaving their home countries because, uh, because of push factors, right, but because their countries are not safe, they're not right. safe in their home countries. So on the one hand, like these folks aren't necessarily, folks like Sarah aren't coming to the United States for work. They're coming to, you know, to escape. The majority are coming, yeah, to, to, to save their lives, to be safe. But of course, you know, they come here shackled with debt. They come here needing to pay for their lives um, yeah. in a new country. So they need work once they get here. So that's sort of an interesting thing. It's this, it's this sort of new phenomenon that we have this drought happening that's shifting where work is and isn't available for for, for immigrants without papers. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have folks who aren't necessarily coming for that specific work. They just need some work. Um, but absolutely, I mean, I think I think um, the where people are working and where people will work and will settle, I think that, that will shift if this drought um, continues as it is projected very terrifyingly to continue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, already I've seen um, folks who tend to work in and around Mendota, the Fresno area, um, going more up north in California to do, like, wine. Um, pick, pick. I wrote a story about um, some teenagers for Vice Magazine who worked melons and who worked almonds. They're shifting and going up north and doing, like, berries and um, and grapes because mm-hmm. the work is better. There's more of it. It's paying better at the moment. It's less competitive. Um, we also saw, um, you know, we've seen in the past that what tends to happen, another, you know, three big employers of undocumented immigrants are farms, right? Yeah. Um, agricultural labor, restaurant industry, which is which tend to be, you know, more focused in cities, the yeah. more higher concentration in cities, um, and also construction. So, um, you know, when in the sort of last drought in the 90s, many more um, agricultural workers were moving from the agricultural centers to, like, Nevada, where there was this housing boom and, um, and uh construction boom. Right. So that might we might see that happen. I think that that's like starting to happen a little bit, um, but we might see that happening more and more. Huh, interesting. And of course meatpacking is another place where uh, a lot of immigrant workers end up um, but not necessarily just Hispanic. I mean, as you know, like the Somalis have t- have done tons of work in meatpacking for some reason they got 
I don't know. They got Absolutely. sucked into that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, um, and you know, a lot of Burmese. I work in. Um, I've worked in refugee resettlement in Oakland, California, and a lot of Burmese uh-huh. um, ethnic minorities from Burma would move from Oakland to like Greeley, Colorado, where there was a huge meatpacking industry. Yes, so sure. that might happen too. But you know, the meat the the meat industry isn't immune either. I mean, it's incredibly water intensive. Yes. Um, and and of course, grain intensive, which is water intensive. So. Right. Um, you know, who knows what's going to happen with that industry as well. That is a good question because, uh, the, I mean, right now the cattle supplies are the lowest they've been in about 50, 60 years, and that's largely due to drought, especially in Texas, um, right. because they slaughtered a ton of herd of cattle because they could not, literally couldn't water them. Um, mm-hmm. The feed problem seems not to be an issue, but giving them actual water to drink does. Um, right. And, of course, heat stress on cattle is very significant, and uh, they don't do well in, in, in uh, very high temperatures, even those that are bred for that. So what do you think? Right. I mean, we're talking about immigration reform here. I mean, as it relates to agriculture, as it relates to meatpacking, as it relates to construction, how do you see immigration reform, if it will be a reform, uh, actually playing out? What do you think would be the best case scenario? Have you thought about, um, you know, what would help people the most and what would be best for the United States? Like, well, I don't I don't know the answer to the problem. And I really right. don't understand yeah. it well enough. Did, if you did, you could, you know, like run for <laughs> Congress and fix it all. Well, I, I don't know, Lauren. I mean, I think last week when I was talking to Tom, I, we were talking about the fact that there is a certain um, there is a certain value in keeping immigration reform kind of off the table because you can exploit workers and because you can. Uh, you know, make more money off the backs of people who are undocumented than you can off people who are. Um, so, Absolutely. you know, Absolutely. what do you think it's, is going to work totally the best? True. Yeah. What do you think will work the best for people? Well, you know, I mean, in the in the sort of bipartisan immigration bill um, that, that passed in the Senate and then, you know, tanked in the House um, a couple of years ago, there was, you know, there were some, there were some things in there that, there, it, was, it was really a compromise bill. Um, it really was. There was, like, all of this ramped-up border security, which the left tends to think of as, like, you know, not not the answer, right? If you build yes. a fence that, that people will go over it or under it, which we already see is true. Um, but, you know, and a lot more militarization of the border. So the left was sort of up in arms about that. But there were some really, really, really important and progressive reforms that, that um, in that bill. And one of them that was, like, rarely talked about was something called a blue card. And it was sort of a temporary um, guest worker visa mm-hmm. for migrant farm workers. So it, allowed, it would allow migrant workers to come in um, to the United States and have this temporary, um, these, you know, these temporary worker cards. It would also mean that they could bring their families with them, so that their families could be part of this temporary worker status. Um, this blue card, and 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 it's you know part of what what allows so much abuse of labor is that people are really afraid to go for, to, to come forward and to sure. um, you know and and to to kind of. To complain, they're they're afraid right. to complain to the authorities. They're sure. afraid to even talk to the authorities, right? They're afraid there's this um, massive PBS um, docu- this PBS documentary that sort of went went viral in this excellent way about rape in the fields, right? That all yes, these, I saw that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was you know, and it's like women don't go forward and say that my the foreman raped me or that the. Right that the, the landowner raped me because they would have to do that to the police, and, and that terrifies them, right, right. That, that because they don't have papers. So the blue card would have fixed that um, because they would have actually had, a, had, you know, status to be here. It would have meant that their families could have come with them, so there would be less family fracturing across borders, um, right. and then the children themselves wouldn't feel terrified about their lack of papers. So that would have been 
really fantastic. And it's possible that that will kind of come forward again. But that was definitely one of the, I think, really positive um, possibilities and ultimately a casualty of, of the failed immigration bill. Well, I'm hoping that uh, an executive order comes down before Mr. Obama leaves office. I mean, he seems to have a pretty good sense of what what's right and wrong. Um, one last question, though, about uh, migrant workers. Um, say they got their blue card or say um, conditions changed in a way that, you know, they were more welcome. Do you see our national attitude as being well? I mean, I see the United States becoming increasingly xenophobic. Um, mm-hmm. And I wondered if you also, you know, in your research, have experienced or saw seen the same phenomenon, um, especially in Midwestern, you know, less cosmopolitan areas of the country where uh, mm-hmm. immigrants have always traditionally been looked at as kind of um, suspect, particularly those from South America, Central America and whatnot. Right. Even though the med- Midwest was like totally built on, um, yeah, <laughs> on right. as was, you know, yeah. uh, much of the country uh, on, on immigrants. Um, yeah, I think I see a ton of xenophobia that makes me um, really it's very upsetting and um, sort of demoralizing and, um, and worrisome, right? That there's a, yes. like this increasingly, um, as with many political things now, this increasing kind of polarity on that um, subject. At the same time, I mean, I think something that, that, the blue card could have done really well um, is is like sort of the more we see and acknowledge and sort of publicize the economic impact and the economic benefits of migrant labor and right. immigrant um, immigrants' contribution to society and right. to the economy, the more we sort of do that analysis and publicize that analysis, the more the sort of math I think and the numbers will do will do the work. Um, I think I think that to me that brings hope to me um, that that mm-hmm. it's not just um, that, that we'll shift from seeing immigrants as these people who come to suck off of our economy and resources and see them actually as, you know, as a lot of us talk about as this sort of huge economic driver, this huge economic force that, sure. um, that is literally, I mean, quite literally feeding our country yeah. um, when, when in, in terms of agriculture. So, yeah, I mean, um, people yeah, forget I mean, they're paying totally into the tax base. Even if they don't pay income tax, they're still paying into the tax base, right? They're buying, they're paying, they're buying stuff. They pay sales tax. I mean... You know, absolutely, absolutely. More, and Social Security. I mean, a lot of yeah. most of them are many of them are working with with um, you know fake Social Security cards or right. borrowed Social Security cards, um, and so Social Security is getting you know taken out of their wages, uh-huh. um, and they're never going to see that Social right. Security. And in fact, it's just going into the like doomed Social Security fund that you know. Don't say that. Eventually, anyway, it's not doomed. Don't say that, Lauren. I'm counting on it. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I'm only like eight years away from retirement, babes. (laughs) Not that I will ever do that. Anyway, unfortunately, we have to wrap this up, but um, I want people to know where they can find more of your work and learn more about what you're doing and, you know, just stay in touch with Lauren Markham. Girl yeah, reporter. Great. Thanks so much. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, so this, as um, as we said, this article was written for the Food and Environmental Reporting Network um, and Pacific Standard, um, and you can um, so you can check it out at either of those outlets, and then you can check out my website at laurenmarkham.info or follow me on Twitter. Um, and yeah, I hope to be writing oh, yeah. more what and more your, stories about what's your Twitter handle and the environment. What's your Twitter handle? Because I wanted to tweet your name out today, and I didn't oh, know what great. it was. Oh, great. Thanks. Um, it's, it's at Lauren Markham and then underscore at the end of Markham. Okay. So Lauren Markham, all one word, and then underscore. Okay. You got it. 
All right, darling. Well, thank you so, so much. That was a great story. And uh, I look forward to talking with you again. I thought this is one of our better, one of my better discussions. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Likewise, I was honored to chat with you. So thanks so much. <laughs> thanks. Take care. And okay, thank you to care. my sponsor, Kane Winery. I uh, hope you guys have plenty of water out there. We'll see you next week with Marion Nessel, the one and only. Have a good week, folks. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 